Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 84. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on August 18th, 2022, in my closet in New Orleans. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. That's a hot topic on Twitter history this week. And if you are a fan of the podcast but have failed to express yourself to that effect, please share your enthusiasm with your curious and thoughtful friends and write us a review on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. That'd be great. Well, I'm back in the South after just shy of a month enjoying the cool weather in the Northeast. Of course, for much of that time, the locals thought it was unbearably hot up there, too. But for us, it was a break. It was great, including a week in the Princeton area, some of that was business in Philly, a week driving through New England, and two weeks in the Adirondacks. If you follow the podcast account on Twitter, you can scroll back and see a lot of the pictures. Anyway, I managed to produce three episodes of the podcast during those four weeks on the road, which is pretty good, if I may say so myself. I also had a nice meeting with a listener in Lake Placid, Rob, from Saratoga Springs in Elizabethtown, New York. We met at the Lake Placid Pub and Brewery and hoisted a few. Thank you, Rob, for the conversation and for picking up the tab. If you need a lawyer in Saratoga Springs or in the Adirondacks, send me a note and I'll connect you with Rob. It's the spring of 1621. At the end of the last episode, the Mayflower had set sail for England, and Tisquantum was teaching the pilgrims how to feed themselves in the land that he grew up in. The dying of that first winter was all but over, with about half of the original 102 passengers, separatists and strangers alike, gone. There were widows and widowers and orphans, and under the pressure of the new world and in furtherance of their religious purpose, over the next months and years, they would reshuffle families and get on with it. Never again would the pilgrims die like the English were still dying at Jamestown, 15 years after their first landfall. Even as the weather warmed in April and calories became easier to come by, they would suffer one more big loss. Governor John Carver, working in the field on a hot spring day, complained about a sharp pain in his head. He returned to his bed to lie down for a spell and lapsed into a coma. He would die only a few days later. Carver's grief-stricken widow would follow him into the grave only five weeks later. Tragic as Carver's death, which sounds like it must have been from a stroke, would have been at the time. It plowed the road for two important moments in the history of the Americans. Carver's servant, John Howland, he who had been blown overboard from the Mayflower on the crossing and miraculously survived, was now free of his obligation. He would inherit some money from Carver, go on to become one of Plymouth's leading citizens and father so many children that he would be ancestor to an estimated two million Americans. If he had remained an indentured servant for the next seven years... Would that have happened? Howland didn't marry until 1623 or 24 when he had been a freeman for at least a couple of years. If as a servant he would have married later or married differently or otherwise had fewer children, then hundreds of thousands of Americans owe their existence today to John Carver's untimely demise. Well, 
genetically speaking, of course. As a married American, I'm savvy enough to know that the real biological miracle was Mrs. Howland, the former Elizabeth Tilly, who not only pumped out 10 surviving children under extremely difficult pre-modern conditions, but must have done an almost inhuman amount of housework to feed and clothe them all. I suspect she rocked as a grandmother, too. If we Americans were ever to personify Mother's Day, I'd nominate Elizabeth Tilly Howland. My guess, please correct me if you know otherwise, is that there is no woman whose name comes down to us who is the ancestral grandmother of so many Americans. Of course, the Pilgrims needed to elect a new governor, and that would be the other momentous consequence of Governor Carver's sudden demise. Here's how Nathaniel Philbrick put it, quote, Bradford was the natural choice, but he was still laid low by illness. With Isaac Allerton, a 36-year-old widower and former Leidener, serving as his assistant, he agreed to take on the greatest challenge of his life. In addition to Allerton, he had William Brewster, Edward Winslow, and Miles Standish to look to for advice. But as governor... He inevitably came to know the loneliness of being Plymouth's ultimate decision-maker. More than ever before, Bradford, who had left his son in Holland and lost his wife in Provincetown Harbor, was alone. Back to me. Not only would William Bradford be the 2nd, 5th, 7th, ninth, and 11th governor of Plymouth Colony, leading the Pilgrims as governor for more than 30 of the 36 years until his death in 1657. But his prowess as an author would put the Pilgrims and Plymouth at the center of the founding story in the history of the Americans. Well, except for the indigenous tradition and the black tradition in Virginia, North Carolina, Florida, Louisiana, Texas, most of the Southwest, California, and Hawaii. But the Pilgrims are still the story to beat for a big part of the country, and justifiably so. Among national origin stories the world over, it is one of the most creditable. The treaty with the Wampanoag came at a price. All spring, delegations from local tribes had come calling on the pilgrims, who would then be obliged to entertain and feed their guests. Not only did their busy diplomatic program cut into the time available for work, but the guests were eating up their food. At this rate, the next winter might be as brutal as the last. One of the pilgrims came up with what Philbert calls an ingenious idea, and I agree. They would give Massasoit a copper chain. If the Grand Sachem had a messenger, friend, or dignitary that he thought the pilgrims should entertain, he would give that person the chain, and that would be Massasoit's signal to let the fun and games begin. The copper chain was like the famous Playboy Club Rabbit Head Key, only different. Bradford picked Edward Winslow and Stephen Hopkins to travel to Massasoit and present the chain and other gifts, including a Notably, a red cotton horseman's coat. Squanto would be the guide. They set out on the morning of July 2nd, 1621, to walk the 40-odd miles to Poconoke, the seat of Massasoit's government, and the name for his tribe. Poconoke was roughly where today's Fall River is. Now let's go to Philbrick's summary of Winslow's account of one moment of the trip. Quote, 
They soon came upon a dozen men, women, and children who were returning to Namaskat after gathering lobsters in Plymouth Harbor, one of the countless seasonal rituals that kept the Indians constantly on the move. As they conversed with their new companions, the Englishmen learned that to walk across the land in southern New England was to travel in time. All along this narrow, hard-packed trail were circular, foot-deep holes in the ground that had been dug where, quote, any remarkable act had occurred. It was each person's responsibility to maintain the holes and to inform fellow travelers of what had once happened at that particular place, so that many things of great antiquity are fresh in memory. Winslow and Hopkins began to see that they were traversing a mythic land where a sense of community extended far into the distant past. So that as a man traveleth, Winslow wrote, his journey will be the less tedious by reason of the many historical discourses that will be related unto him. Back to me, these memory holes, which Philbrick perhaps unfortunately calls them, were the ancient precursor of an interactive tour. Today, we would read a historical marker or, even more often now, point our phone at a QR code to learn what had happened in that place. The Wampanoag peoples did the same thing, but in an entirely oral tradition, save for the hulls themselves. This was especially important after 1620, with the population so much reduced. A culture dependent on oral tradition is especially vulnerable to an epidemic. Not only do the people die, but so does their history, the memories of the few survivors being so much less reliable than the memories of the many. Even barely literate societies can lose a lot of people and survive as a culture. See, for example, the persistence of European history and culture notwithstanding the devastation of the Black Death in the 14th century. History may fade for a time, but as long as literacy and parchment survives, it can recover much of its important memories as Europe did in the Renaissance. Seen this way, writing is fundamental to the resilience of civilizations. Indigenous peoples in the Americas would know a lot more about their own ancient cultures if they had developed true writing before the Europeans arrived, even if little else were different. Winslow, Hopkins, and Squanto, now with some Indians in tow telling them about memory holes and such, followed roughly the route of Highway 44, which runs west from Plymouth to Providence. Eventually, the trail converged with the Taunton River, then known as the Titicut. The Taunton served as a major thoroughfare, allowing Indians to travel much of the distance between Poconoke and Plymouth by canoe. The delegation followed it all the way to Massasoit's capital. The Grand Sachem invited the travelers into his abode, a wetu or a wigwam, and they presented him with a copper chain and the red coat. Massasoit donned them both, and appeared to Winslow at least to have been not a little proud to wear the presence, and pleasantly surprised by the visit. Massasoit had gathered his people around and gave a long oration, presumably with Tisquantum translating for the two Englishmen. He asked rhetorically, of course, was not he, Massasoit, commander of the country about him? He then went through a litany of the peoples who had pledged allegiance to him. 
Spielberg says that, quote, with the naming of each place, his men responded with a refrain about Massasoit's power over the village and how the village would be at peace with the English and provide them with furs. This went on until 30 or more settlements had been named. Winslow wrote, quote, so that as it was delightful, it was tedious unto us. Massasoit then lit a pipe for them all to share and declared that he was now King James's man. On learning that James had been a widower for more than a year, Massasoit expressed wonder that James had chosen to live, quote, without a wife. This would come as no surprise to anyone who's done a bit of Googling on James I, who was in such matters, shall we say, ahead of his time. We do not know whether Winslow and Hopkins exchanged knowing glances. The Englishmen, and presumably Squanto, were very hungry, having eaten nothing but some road porridge for a couple of days. But they had caught Massasoit unawares. He had no food for a feast, and they would go to bed hungry. And what a bed it was. The Grand Sachem had wanted to honor his visitors, even though he had no food. He himself had just returned to Poconoke. So he insisted that they sleep on the royal sleeping platform, along with Massasoit and his wife and a couple of senior warriors. Not surprisingly, neither Winslow nor Hopkins slept, but they did learn that the Indians of that culture at least sang themselves to sleep. Between the singing, their hunger, and the fleas on the platform, they had a long night. The men from Plymouth spent another day and a night in Poconoke, during the course of which it was decided that Squanto would remain there and use it as a base to establish trading relationships for the pilgrims with the villages in Massasoit's domain. Massasoit then designated his man Tokamahaman to guide Winslow and Hopkins back to Plymouth. There were two more episodes in 1621 that cemented the alliance of the pilgrims and Massasoit, and which had the further effect of consolidating Massasoit's power among the tribes in the region. Toward the end of July, 16-year-old John Billington got lost in the woods somewhere south of Plymouth. For five days, he wandered without a clue, living off nuts and berries and such, until he happened upon the Indian village of Menomet, 20 miles or more from Plymouth. The Menomet sachem, Kanakum, handed the errant teen over to the Nossets of Cape Cod. Kanakum was, in theory, one of Massasoit's sachems, but the Nossets were not in the Wampanoag tribal group. Long-standing and attentive listeners will recall that it was the Nossets from whom the pilgrims borrowed, you can't see my scare quotes, corn and other items back in December while they were blundering around Cape Cod looking for a good place to settle. Seven months later, the pilgrims had not made good on the vow they'd made to themselves to reimburse the Indians who had grown the corn. So the Nossets were, understandably, vexed. Young Billington was now a hostage. Before we get to John Billington's redemption, we ought to ask why Canicum, supposedly under Massasoit, would hand Billington over to the Nossets, who were not. The answer has to be that Canicum was more afraid of the Nossets than he was of Massasoit. He may also have been one of the sachems who was annoyed that Massasoit made common cause with the English, but that would have been a secondary concern. 
fear and insecurity almost always trumps more cerebral considerations. The Nossets, it turns out, were far less affected by the epidemic of the 16-teens. The Pilgrims hadn't seen very many of them when they were floundering around Cape Cod back in December, but only because they hadn't wanted to be seen. Now they wanted to be seen, and it was the Pilgrims who had to go see them. Squanto had now returned from his diplomatic mission, so Bradford asked him and Tuckamahaman to guide ten armed Englishmen in the shallop to rescue young Billington. Shortly after they departed, a ferocious thunderstorm broke that forced them to put into the harbor at today's barnstable. When the sun rose the next morning, the shallop was aground on the tidal flats. They could see Indians out on the flats collecting lobsters, and Squanto and Tokamahaman went to speak with them. Soon they were introduced to the local sachem, a young man named Ayano, who agreed to take them to the Nossets. While at Barnstable, the visiting pilgrims encountered the English past in the region. Here's Philbrick's account, quote, An ancient woman, whom they judged to be a hundred years old, made a point of seeking out the pilgrims because she never saw English. As soon as she set eyes on them, she burst into tears, weeping and crying excessively. They learned that three of her sons had been captured seven years before by Thomas Hunt, and she still mourned their loss. We told them that we were sorry that any Englishman should give them that offense, Winslow wrote, that Hunt was a bad man, and that all the English that heard of it condemned him for the same. Back to me, it probably didn't hurt that Squanta was along. Having spent weeks on Hunt's ship sailing to Spain, he would have gotten to know the woman's three sons. His testimony that these English were different from Hunt, Pring, and so many others would have carried a lot of weight. In any case, this is nothing less than an early account of the intergenerational trauma of slavery and the damage that it inflicts over time. Through INO's good offices, the Pilgrim Expeditionary Force was soon introduced to the sachem of the Nossets, one Aspinay. Aspinay came with around a hundred of his warriors, some of whom, no doubt, had been shooting at the Pilgrims from the woods back in December at the now-famous First Encounter. It was agreed that each side would stand off, and that Indians would come forward only two at a time— One of the first was the man who had owned the corn that the pilgrims had looted on that first exploration of the Cape. The pilgrims invited him to visit their settlement where he would be paid for his loss. The pilgrims then presented Aspinay with a knife. And when Aspinay had his men carry Billington, who in Philbrick's words looked none the worse for his time in captivity to the shallop, peace was declared all around. The now-friendly Aspinay had some bad news. The word on the Indian street was that the Narragansetts had killed several of Massasoit's men and had taken the Grand Sachem captive. There being only a few able-bodied men back at Plymouth, if the Narragansetts had attacked while the expeditionary force was still on Cape Cod, the settlement would be wiped out. They hurried back. Now back to Philbrick, quote, Massasoit had indeed been taken, temporarily as it turned out, by the Narragansetts. But they soon learned that the greatest threat was not from the Narragansetts, but from the Poconoke's supposed allies. 
Though the lesser sachems who had opposed Massasoit's treaty with the pilgrims, this was just the opportunity that they'd been looking for. One sachem in particular, Corbidant from the village of Metapoiset, just to the east of Massasoit's headquarters, was attempting to use the sachem's troubles to break the Poconoke English alliance. Corbett had arrived at the village of Namaskat and was now attempting to, quote, draw the hearts of Massasoit's subjects from him. Bradford decided to send Squanto and Tokamahaman to Namaskat to find out what Corbett was up to. The next day, one of Massasoit's men, a warrior named Habamak, arrived at Plymouth, gasping for breath and covered in sweat. He'd just run the 15 miles from Namaskat, and he had terrible news. Squanto, he feared, was dead. When Hobomac had last seen the interpreter, one of Corbett's warriors had been holding a knife to his chest. Corbett quite rightly viewed Squanto as the instigator of Massasoit's shift toward the pilgrims. If Squanto was dead, Corbett told the Indians at Namaskat, the English had lost their tongue. Bradford immediately called a meeting of his advisors. Back to me. Wildly outnumbered and with only a feeble understanding of the machinations of the tribes around them, the pilgrims decided on a preemptive strike. Bradford wrote, with a few clarifying edits from me, quote, It was conceived not fit to be born, for if we should suffer our friends and messengers thus to be wronged, we should have none would cleave to us, or give us any intelligence, or do us service afterwards. Standish proposed hitting back fast and as hard as they could with such few men of fighting age. With Massasoit's Habamak as guide, they marched on Corbettant on Tuesday, August 14, 1621. The plan was for Habamak to lead them to Corbettant's wigwam around midnight. They would surround it, and then Standish and Habamak would charge inside and capture Corbettant. When all was ready, they charged in. It turned out that the wigwam was, not surprisingly, very dark and crowded with sleeping Indians, now shocked awake. There was much weeping and begging for mercy and such, with various panicked Indians trying to escape through the sides of the wigwam by moving aside mats and bark. A few shots were fired, but nobody was killed. Two Indians had been injured. Within a few minutes, Habamak learned that Corbettant had been there, but wasn't there now, and that both Squanto and Tukamahaman were alive. Well then, never mind. The pilgrims brought the two injured Indians back to Plymouth, where their surgeon, Samuel Fuller, attended to them, and they were released to go home. The raid, futile as it was, turned out to have been decisive in the impression that it made. Gradually, as word spread, the local sachems conveyed their respect. Epinow, the sachem on Martha's Vineyard who had lived in London, prided himself on suckering the English into taking him home, and who had attacked Thomas Dermer only a few years before, signaled that he wanted peace. Even Corbinan, his home had been attacked, did the same. On September 13th, Nine sachems, including Corbett, Epinau, Massasoit's skeptical brother Quadwaquina, and Canicum, the sachem who had turned young Billington over to the Nossets, came to Plymouth and signed a treaty professing loyalty to King James. Epinau, at least, would have known what that meant, 
and how far away King James, in fact, was, and it's hard to believe he would not have told the other sachems. Regardless, bold action tempered with wisdom and genuine humanity had brought a durable peace in the region for the pilgrims and confirmed the wisdom of Massasoit, all with no recorded loss of life. Seems like something to be thankful for. The first Thanksgiving probably happened within just a few weeks of the big treaty in late September or early October. Thanksgiving is, in my own humble opinion, the most important of the uniquely American holidays. Everybody has birthdays of their most emblematic leaders. And many countries have an Independence Day. There are memorials for dead soldiers and celebrations of labor. Thanksgiving, done as we do it, is ours. Except, of course, for that nonsense they do up in Canada in lieu of Columbus Day, which they only proclaimed in 1957, 90 years after Confederation. All right, all right, I'm just goofing. Canadian listeners, cool your jets. I'm fine with Canadian Thanksgiving, such as it is. The Thanksgiving of history is very different from the Thanksgiving of mythology and national celebration. We covered the mythology and celebration part in a sidebar episode called Notes on Thanksgiving, which we put out last Thanksgiving, and I'll probably run as an encore this Thanksgiving. The history is a lot less clear, the documentation of it being limited to two or three brief accounts. Broader historical knowledge and not a little imaginative speculation fill in the gaps. The historical, quote, first Thanksgiving was not called that at the time. The term was first used in the 19th century when the pilgrim narratives began to surface and a new American nation was groping for an origin story. It was, however, giving of thanks. The pilgrims were more or less always conscious of God's intervention. And when things went well for them, as they had in 1621, they knew it was the Lord's doing and it was their duty to thank him for it. But that does not mean it would have been a joyless, sanctimonious ceremony. Winslow's short description is as follows, quote, Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men in fowling, so that we might after a special manner rejoice together, after we had gathered the fruits of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as served the company almost a week, at which time other recreations. We exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us, and amongst the rest their greatest king Massasoit with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted. And they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. And although it not always be so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. Back to me, rejoicing. Food was plentiful. The pilgrims were at peace with the local tribes, and nobody had died since the carvers in April. The gathering could not have been, however, at all like most of its depictions in later works of art. The Indians outnumbered the pilgrims almost two to one. The English could not just call up a local party equipment place and rent tables and chairs for another 90 guests. 
They probably didn't even have enough tables and chairs for themselves, having built only a small fraction of the buildings they had hoped to do by that point. Here's how Philbrick describes it, quote, Even if all the pilgrims' furniture was brought out into the sunshine, most of the celebrants stood, squatted, or sat on the ground as they clustered around outdoor fires, where the deer and birds turned on wooden spits, and where pottages, stews into which varieties of meats and vegetables were thrown, simmered invitingly. The pilgrims may also have added fish to their meal of birds and deer. In fall, striped bass, bluefish, and cod were abundant. Perhaps most important to the pilgrims was that with a recently harvested barley crop, it was now possible to brew beer. Alas, the pilgrims were without pumpkin pies or cranberry sauce. There were also no forks, which did not appear at Plymouth until the last decades of the 17th century. The pilgrims ate with their fingers and their knives. I know what you're thinking. That would actually be an incredibly fun Thanksgiving. Finally, it should be said that Massasoit had a great deal to be thankful for, too. Yes, he had to deal with these English on lands that his people used to live on. In the long term, that would be terrible for Massasoit's people. But when the pilgrims arrived, Massasoit had been in a tough spot. The Narragansett pressed him from the west, and he had lost so many people, including warriors, that sachems who had been his supporters were slipping away. He made a huge bet, aligning himself with the pilgrims, and it had paid off without any meaningful bloodshed. His authority was established, and he and Bradford would keep the peace for the rest of their lives. As I've said before, one of the things that we history podcasters can do that academic historians largely do not is talk about counterfactuals, what might have been. If you have been listening to this podcast from the beginning, you know that by 1620, many thousands of Europeans had come to the lands of today's United States for many different reasons. Of all the peoples who had come so far, the Spanish, French in Florida and New York, and the English on the Outer Banks and on the James, the pilgrims had behaved with the greatest respect and reserve for the locals. In this, Massasoit got lucky. The pilgrims might easily have brought along John Smith, who would not have been so willing as Miles Standish to act with restraint. They might have landed at the mouth of the Hudson, leaving Cape Cod for other European settlers who, more likely than not, would have abused the weak Wampanoag and might easily have enslaved them. Instead, William Bradford, Edward Winslow, and Miles Standish, on the one hand, and Massasoit and the other local sachems, on the other hand, each found themselves with counterparties of remarkable restraint. This is a great place to stop for today. Next time, we'll continue with the pilgrims into the difficult year of 1622, in which there is intrigue and one of our leading characters meets an untimely demise. Then we'll return to the Chesapeake and look at Opakankana's War of 1622. I'm a little preoccupied with family stuff in the next week or 10 days, though, so I might pivot to a sidebar or be a couple of days late. We shall see. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. You know what to do? Subscribe to the podcast. Tell all your friends, or at least the worthy ones. Follow on Twitter or Facebook. And send me emails. Love the emails. Until next time. <laughs>